First Kings, Second Kings, and Second Chronicles. And those are tough books to read. I know some of you have read those books. Um, but I'm going to talk to you this morning about the spirit of Elijah, which um, uh, the life of Elijah, but the spirit of Elijah, which I believe carries from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I'm really excited to bring this message because I think Elijah was a very unique prophet. Uh, he had some, well, uh, let's just face it, he, he didn't die um, like um, Enoch. And so he's a unique prophet for sure. Um, some of you might you know, be kind of new to reading the Bible and you might wonder, what is a prophet? You know, what is that word, prophet? And it's interesting that we didn't actually come up with our own word uh, for prophet. We took the Greek word, it's called a transliteration, and we just used our letters <laughs> to, to spell it. Um, the Greek word is prophetes. And what it means is, is to, to shine or to show ahead. You know, like you would shine the light, like if you're walking down a dark path and you shine a flashlight ahead. That's what a prophet did. They shined ahead God's word and what God was going to do. My favorite illustration, though, of a prophet, given by Pastor Skip Heitzig, he says a, a prophet was a defibrillator. A defibrillator. And, and you might be, you know, recall, you've seen in the movies, you have the paddles, right? And, and then the, 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 right? I mean, that's the defibrillator. And the goal of the prophet is to shock the hearts of people back to God. So it makes sense that that's what a prophet is, a defibrillator. Um, but Elijah, the prophet, had the very daunting task, I believe, of trying to shock the nation of Israel back to God. And not the southern kingdom. Remember, we're in the place now where the kingdom of Israel had split, really. The Israelites had split. The ten tribes had gone north, and that's called Israel, and then the two tribes remained in the southern, and that's called Judah. And the one, um, the northern kingdom, Israel called Israel, they basically um, had no good kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, they had 19 bad kings in a row. I mean, can you imagine having 19 bad presidents in a row? And some of you are like, yeah, we, yeah I'm there with you. No comment. <laughs> but one of the worst kings was King Ahab. And, and Elijah had to prophesy to him. And honestly, he would say what he had to say, and then he would go in hiding. If you read it, you know what I'm talking about. But even worse than Ahab was his wife. His wife's name was Jezebel. And, and Jezebel is just not a name you give to your daughter. Which is kind of funny for my wife and I, it's sort of an inside joke, because when we were first trying to come up with a name for our daughter, who's now 15, we had a whole bunch of names, and you know, you got names coming at you all over, and people suggesting them, and, and the name Jezebel came up, and it's sort of a pretty name when you say it, but I said, geez, honey, we probably shouldn't do that to our daughter. You know, someday I'd be like, Pastor, you named your daughter Jezebel. That's just not nice. King Ahab made Baal worship in Israel. The, 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 the person to worship. Baal, you see that a lot in the Old Testament. And you might wonder, what is Baal? B-A-A-L. It means Lord. And Baal was the sun god and the storm god. So in other words, Baal was believed to bring to you um, good produce, right? A, a good crop. And also 
a big family, right? That, that was something that they worshipped Baal for. But to appease Baal, you did disgusting things. Sexual immorality, self-inflicted injuries, and sacrifice your firstborn. These are the things they did to appease Baal so that they could have lots of crops and, and a big family. Now, Baal's mother in, in this mythology, if you will, was Asherah. That's another name you see them worshiping, Asherah. She was the moon god and the goddess of love and war, and so the people would basically build these totem poles, because we're familiar with totem poles, carving out an image of Asherah. And they would worship Asherah because they believed that would help them fight their battles and so on and so forth. But these are false gods that we see in First and Second Kings, and they worship them. And I just asked myself, why? Why would they do that? Why would they worship these false gods. And I thought, it's probably the same reason why people will go to psychics. Because they believe if they go to a psychic, the psychic will tell them the future or give them good news about the future. In a roundabout way, psychics have a way, just like a fortune cookie, of giving you sort of a general good news message. But psychics are a little bit better because they can observe you and sort of make some connections. I'll never forget my 8th grade teacher told me this one time, he had gone to a psychic and the psychic had told him things about himself. And he's like, yeah, duh, you're picking out things that are, you know, I'm a hardworking guy. Yeah, I have calluses on my hands. You know, I mean, he, but that's why people do that. I think people want to hear good news. And the Israelites wanted their crops to grow. They wanted family. They wanted love. They wanted to win their battles. So they worshiped Baal and Asherah because they believed that they could do it for them. But those desires haven't changed today, have they? Don't people still want those same things? We want love, right? You want family. You want your bank, account, uh, bank accounts to grow. You want power. You want fame. And I'm just here to tell you, like Elijah told them, don't worship false gods. Don't worship idols. There's only one God, and I will tell you that our God is a jealous God. Don't worship things that don't matter and aren't even real. I mean, what are the first three commandments of the Big Ten? Right? First one, I am the Lord your God. Second one, you shall have no other gods before me. And third one, don't make any images of me. So I tell you this morning, don't worship the God that you probably picked up on from Hollywood. And don't worship... Uh, uh, the God that you might have learned in a church that didn't teach the Bible correctly. And don't worship a God that maybe fits your philosophies that you might have in life. Worship the one true God, the one that we see in the Bible, the one that I present to you every single week faithfully. And I have people, I have you, just like the Bereans. I have you to keep me accountable that I don't stand up here and use this platform to teach you what I want to teach you. I teach you the Word of God, because that's what God has called me to do. And we must worship the one true God, the God as we know Him in His Word, the one that Elijah showed to the Israelites. And I pray today that the spirit of Elijah will shock your heart. So you will worship God with all your heart, and all your mind, and all your soul. I believe if we do that, it actually becomes contagious. Other people around you will worship God when you worship Him the right way. So may the Spirit of Elijah help you today worship God 
with all your heart. If you don't remember anything else from this message, that's my prayer, that you'll remember that, that the Spirit of Elijah will help you turn your heart to God and worship Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day to worship you. Thank you for this glorious weather and, and just this opportunity for us to gather together today to worship you. The, the music brought us to a place where we felt the Spirit. We felt your Spirit. We felt your presence and we continue to feel it through this service. I pray this message will be from you through me that I could become less and you could become more. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So I'm uh, excited, as I said, to talk about Elijah. Uh, Elijah comes out of nowhere in the Bible. There's really no past about Elijah. You see him in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Um, we'll have this on the screen for you, all the scriptures. Um, but there is a Bible for you. If you want one um, on the back table, you're welcome to take it home and keep it for yourself. Of course, we all have Bibles on our phones and such. But in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah is a Tishbite. That's honestly all we know about him. He's from Tishbe, so he's a Tishbite. And um, he has a, this task of talking to King Ahab, the evil king of Israel. And he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be no rain for three and a half years. Now, he is talking to a guy who is trying to lead people to worship Baal, and Baal is supposed to bring rain and sun so the crops will grow. And Elijah's saying, now let's see your crops grow. Ahab, I'm taking away, God's taking away the rain for three and a half years. And then after Elijah says that, God says, go hide. Because <laughs> Ahab's coming for you. So ravens brought him food, and he drank from the brook, brook Cherith. And then the brook dried up, and he sent Elijah to a place called Zarephath. And when you look at a map and you realize, where is Zarephath? You find out it's not in Israel. This is significant because when you read the New Testament in Luke chapter 4, Jesus will talk about Elijah and Elisha. Okay, we, we confuse those two sometimes. Elijah with a J and Elisha all right, with an SH. But Elijah and Elisha went to foreigners and healed them. Which is why Jesus said, a prophet is, not without, is without honor in his own country. And he references Elijah going to Zarephath and helping a widow there. Three and a half years go by, there is no rain. That's how you know, by the way, that a prophet is a prophet from God. That when he says something, it comes true. Right? That's what the scripture teaches us. Right? Pay attention. If they say it, prophesy, does it come true? And then after three and a half years, Elijah is now sent back to Ahab for a showdown. And this isn't the thriller in Manila, all right? I call this showdown, the fire fell on Carmel, all right? That's all I got. I don't know too many words that rhyme with Carmel or Carmel, all right? So, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 19. Therefore, send and gather all Israel. This is, this is um, Elijah talking. Here's the showdown. Let's go to Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table... So it's Elijah versus 850 prophets, false ones. And Elijah talks to the people who are gathered around for this big showdown. In verse 21, and he says to these people who are God's people, right? He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people didn't answer. So you can see where their hearts are at, right? 
Their hearts are divided. They don't know what to say. They're speechless. So the challenge is, they put up two altars in which God is supposed to bring down fire and burn up the altars. Well, the Baal prophets go first, and if you read this before, and I encourage you to read all of this in 1 Kings, okay, starting in verse 17, or chapter 17. The Baal prophets do their thing. They dance. They cut themselves, right? Um, Elijah mocks them. I love that part, right? Well, you know, come on, dance. Shout louder, you know? And uh, nothing. So then Elijah goes, and he says, by the way, soak the altar. Get it really wet, because you know how hard it is to start a fire when the wood's wet, right? Soak it again. And then he calls on the one true God. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's what God wants from you today. He wants you to turn your heart to him. Worship him with all your heart. Fire, of course, comes down, right? Like I said, the fire fell on Carmel, all right? All the people do turn their hearts back to God, and they do worship God. And then Elijah says, okay, now that you're on our side, take care of those prophets. And they slaughter the prophets. Elijah then goes to the top of Mount Carmel, and he prays fervently, and he sends his servant out. And on the seventh time, the servant sees a cloud. Rain comes. This is my favorite part of the story because Elijah is fired up. See what I did there? All right. And he pulls a Forrest Gump and he goes running. Check this out in verse 45. Ahab rode his chariot. Okay. Um, We'll go a little bit next verse or next part. It says that um, Ahab, the king, right, the evil king, he rode what I believe was his chariot down to the valley of Jezreel. But the hand of the Lord, verse 46, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment, all right, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He ran faster than the chariot. That is such a spiritual high. I mean, you ever had a spiritual high and you just, you just go, man, you just run, right? It's awesome. But then, right after that, comes the low. This is how you know Elijah was a man like us. He had feelings, just like us. He suffered from depression. He had issues, like we do. And it shows here that he had a very spiritual low because Jezebel put a bounty on his life. Verse 4, chapter 19. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and he sat down under a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is. Maybe it's like a willow tree, though. You know, maybe, maybe I, I think of a willow tree there. And he says, that I might die. See how human he is? He asked that he might die, saying, Enough, O Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. He's human, just like us. He has emotions, he has feelings. But an angel of the Lord comes and ministers to Elijah because Jehovah Jireh will provide. Amen? Angel of the Lord ministers to him, and Elijah then moves on to a cave where he's hiding, and he complains to God, I'm the only one left, God. You ever feel that way? I'm it. You know, you might be in your workplace, you might be in your school, you might be in your neighborhood, you might feel like, man, am I the only Christian here? That's how Elijah feels. Am I the only one left, God? And God's going to speak to him, but he doesn't hear God in a fierce wind. He doesn't hear God in an earthquake. He doesn't hear God in a fire. How does he hear God? 
in a still, small voice, a whisper, you are not alone. That's what God says to him. You are not alone. I still have 7,000 prophets that have not bowed down to Baal. Now go, anoint Elisha for ministry. That's what God says to him. So Elijah goes, verse 19, chapter 19. He finds Elisha, Elisha, who was plowing. He was a farmer with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. He was with the 12th, a pair of oxen. Elijah passed him. Just picture this, you know. Elijah sees him out there farming, and he passes by him, and he takes off his cloak, and he just throws it on him and keeps walking. And Elisha knows what that means. So he leaves the ox and he runs over to Elijah and he says, listen, let me kiss my mother and my father and then I will follow you. And he says, go, do what you got to do. Verse 21, he returned from following them. He took the yoke of oxen, I love this part, he sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes, gave it to the people. He had a party. They ate. He arose and he followed Elijah and assisted him. You see, what I love about this is that Elisha followed the call of ministry like I followed the call of ministry. You, you, you bust up the, the uh, yoke. You slaughter the... You, you don't look back. There's no turning back. He couldn't go back and be a farmer. It's all gone. He's all in. And that's how we need to be as Christians. All in for God. No turning back, right? Then Elijah will go on and do a few more things um, before his departure, which, by the way, is a very unique departure. He took his cloak. Okay, this is interesting, this cloak. It's a, it's a hairy cloak, if you will. You'll find that out a little bit. But he takes it and he strikes down on the Jordan River. And the Jordan River parts and Elijah and Elisha walk through it. And then in verse 9, when they cross through, Elijah says to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, when I first read that, and maybe when you first read that, you might have thought, why is Elisha asking for a double portion of his spirit? I mean, was he asking for double duty? I mean, you know young bucks are always thinking they can do more than their teachers, right? You know, you, you know the young people, right? Am I right? I thought I could do way more. I always thought I could do better than the person that, that was ahead of me. But Elisha is not actually saying that. Okay, I help you understand it in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. The firstborn of a family received a double portion of an inheritance because he was the one to carry on the father's legacy. The firstborn gets the double portion. So what really Elisha is asking is, Elijah, I want to carry on your ministry. That is what I want. And so therefore, Elijah tells him, well, if you see me <laughs> go to the Lord, then you can do it. And so it happens. Verse 11. They were walking, and behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separates them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He did not experience an earthly death like we do, he went up to be with the Lord. And Elisha saw it, so he carries on the spirit of Elijah. In fact, he picks up the cloak that didn't go um, with Elijah, and he strikes the Jordan River, and it parts, and Elisha walks back on the other side. 
Now, Elisha will do many amazing things of which I have no time to share with you this morning, but just two of my very favorites. Because Elisha's goal was Elijah's goal, because he walked in the spirit of Elijah. And I hope it's our goal today, and it's my goal, to turn your hearts back to God, to worship God with all your heart. Here's my two favorites from Elisha. First, there's a bunch of teenage boys, all right? How many teenage boys in the audience today? Just a show of hands, we got a couple, all right? Thank you, Bobby, for being honest and raising your hand there. So a bunch of teenage boys are making fun of Elisha because he's bald, all right? And they're calling him names. So he curses them in the name of the Lord, and out of the woods come two mama bears and tear the boys up, 42 of them. The moral of the story, don't mess with ball guys. Amen? <laughs> don't mess with us. Secondly, my favorite story of Elisha is um, how he keeps ruining the king of Syria's plans. The, the enemy of Israel is Syria, and it was as if Elisha was hearing, hearing the very strategic plans of the king of Syria in his private study with his generals and all that. It was as if Elisha was at the door listening to the whole thing. Well, of course we know that God knows everything, and God was telling Elisha, and Elisha was telling Israel. And so all of these plans of king Syria were kind of being thwarted every single time. So he's mad. He finds out it's Elisha who's doing it. And so in verse um, chapter 6 of 2 Kings, verse 15, the servant of um, uh, I should back up and tell you that the, the king of Syria found them, circled their, their camp. They had this great army, and they circle Elisha and his servant. And the servant goes outside. He says, he rose early in the morning, he went out, and he sees an army with horses and chariots all around the city. And the servant goes back into Elisha and says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I love that because it reminds me of 1 John 4, 4 where he says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And of course he's talking about the Holy Spirit that's in you is greater than the devil that's in the world. Amen? Elisha prays and says in verse 17, O Lord, please open his eyes so he can see this. And the Lord opens the eyes of the young servant, and he saw, and around their army, on the mountains, were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God's army was so much greater than the Syrian army, and they had them surrounded. I love it. Verse 18, when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now, this is where it gets interesting. They're all blind, this whole army. And Elisha takes them, leads them, right into Samaria, the capital of Israel. Right into that place. Now, some might think they know what's going to happen next. you got the enemy right in your midst, and they're blind. It's time to... Slaughter them. Take care of them. And that's exactly what the king of Israel says. Let's kill them. But Elijah says, nope. Elisha says, let's feed them. What? 
feed them. Verse 23, so they prepared a great feast. And when the enemy had eaten and drank, he sent them away. And they went back to their master. And guess what happened? The Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. There was peace. Because Jesus said to love your enemies. Do you see the message that we have here? It's amazing. Elisha would eventually die. He was buried. And it's very interesting what happens. Many years after that, the grave had been stumbled upon. And it says in verse 21 of chapter 13, a man was actually buried in the same place Elisha was. It was a marauding band and they threw, a, threw someone into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as that dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. That is very powerful and amazing, the, the life of Elisha. Now, we go shooting ahead many more years, many more evil kings in Israel, okay? And um, there is, I just want you to understand, because I think it's important for when you read, how many of you are familiar with the Good Samaritan parable? We know the Good Samaritan parable. Okay, so this will help you understand why Jesus used the Samaritan as the example. You see, the king of Assyria came in and eventually um, took over the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And when that happened, the king of Assyria repopulated the area with foreigners. So they had foreigners intermarrying with Israel. So a Samaritan was a mixed race. Do you see that? So that's important because that's why in the New Testament, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jewish people because it was a race thing. It was a race thing. And this is why Jesus uses the Good Samaritan as his example to teach you love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the message we all need to hear today because there just is no place for judging others by race. Amen? That's right. Now, we see the spirit of Elijah continuing on into the New Testament. And I think this is very fascinating. I hope you appreciate this because it's very important for us to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament come together. In the Old Testament, at the very end, I'm talking the very end, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, a prophet. And the last chapter of his book, the last two verses of that last chapter, God makes a promise. And it's the same promise he's been making throughout the whole Bible, by the way. It's a redemption promise. He's going to redeem us. Our sin separates us from God. But God redeems us. And it says in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. God promised to continue his redemption plan using Elijah, restoring relationships between a father and a child and really between God and man. And the spirit of Elijah will initiate the coming of the Messiah. So from Old Testament to New Testament, we have a big, giant 400-year gap. 
And when the New Testament opens up, when you pick up your Bible and you read the New Testament, you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the story of Jesus. But it doesn't start really with the person of Jesus. It starts with another guy. What's his name? John. John the Baptist. And I always wondered, is he Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist? I'm not sure. Totally kidding, that's just a joke, okay? He was a Baptist because he baptized people, all right? But he was a strange fellow, was he not? We see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food were locusts and honey. I can do the honey part, all right? But the locusts? Now, you say, why did he eat the weird foods? Well, if you read Luke chapter 1, verse 80, you see that he grew up strong in the spirit in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So I guess that's all you got to eat in the wilderness is wild honey and locusts. All right? He was a vegetarian, I guess. I don't know. Vegan, too? Maybe. I don't know. It's... But he ate those foods because he lived in the wilderness. Now, do you know anyone else in Scripture that wore a hairy garment with a belt and lived in the wilderness? And the answer is, yes, you do, because we're in 2 Kings. Verse uh, 1, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. A man said, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, well, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah the Tishbite wore a cloak that was hairy, a belt around his waist, and he lived in the wilderness. So if you ever wondered why on earth did John the Baptist wear those clothes and live in the woods? Because he had the spirit of Elijah. It's amazing, the connection. John had a ministry of calling people to repent of their sins, and he baptized them with water. He, of course, said Jesus would come, or the Messiah would come and baptize with fire with the Holy Spirit. But when confronted by these religious leaders, who do you think you are baptizing, right? Well, he confessed, chapter, tw- uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, he confessed and said, listen, I'm not the Christ. That's immediately where the Jewish people went, right? The religious leaders came to him, the Pharisees, right? The, the scribes, the Sadducees, they came to him and they said, you know, who do you think you are? And he's like, listen, I'm not the Christ. Because there were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that predicted the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one that would restore Israel. He says, I'm not him. So then they asked the second question that they, every person would ask, and that is, well, are you Elijah then? Because they read Malachi's prophecy. They understood Elijah would come again. He says, nope, I'm not him. But I'll come back to why he said that. Okay? Then the third question is, are you the prophet? Now, you might be wondering, why would they say that? That's sort of generic. No, it's not. If you read Deuteronomy 18.18, you'll see that Moses was told by God, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. So the Jewish people are still waiting, the ones that don't believe in Jesus, okay, for the Messiah, Elijah, and the prophets. But if you read Acts chapter 3, which I can't go there right now, but I'll let you do that for yourself, for homework, all right, Acts chapter 3, you'll see Peter shows you how Jesus fulfilled that. Now, let's back up to John's response about Elijah. He said he wasn't Elijah. But if you read Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied about John. 
Verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. So why didn't John say that he was Elijah? But Jesus does say it. Well, I believe it's because John knew what they were really asking is, are you Elijah in the flesh? Because they knew Elijah didn't die. So they thought, well, maybe you're Elijah in the flesh. You look like him. (laughs) You're dressed like him, if you will. But he said, nope, I'm the spirit of Elijah, and I'm not going to say yes to that. Now, we take this and move it to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 11. I know you didn't think we would end up in Revelation chapter 11 when we started this. But I want you to see this. In Revelation 11 verse 3, it says, I will grant authority. This is about the tribulation time, the seven-year period. I will grant authority to my witnesses, to my two witnesses, and my two witnesses will prophesy for 1260 days, which is, trust me, I'm a math teacher, all right, former math teacher, three and a half years, okay, for half of the tribulation, clothed in sackcloth. So for three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation, God is going to send two witnesses to do what? To turn people's hearts back to him, to evangelize to share the truth. For three and a half years, two witnesses will do this. And I believe these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And the reason why I believe that is because of what it says in verse 6. Not to mention, we also see Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But if you read verse 6, it says that these two witnesses will have the power to shut the sky so no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. The two things they will do are the same two things that Elijah and Moses already did. But that happens in the end times. And my hope is that today it will not take an unusual miracle like that to turn your heart back to God, to worship Him with all your heart. Because honestly, that's all God wants from you. Your full devotion. Your undivided attention. When you give God that, then you're in the spirit of Elijah. And don't think that Elijah was superhuman. Because as James informs us in verse 17 of chapter 5, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. With a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently and it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. He had a nature like us. He was a simple man that surrendered his life to God and God used him in a mighty way. The spirit of Elijah turns hearts back to God. Do you have the spirit of Elijah? I hope you do. And when you do, when you worship God with all your heart, you start to take those practical steps to get closer to him. You come to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you repent of your sin, you get baptized. I had the privilege of baptizing a friend of mine named Matt. He comes to Life Purpose um, regularly. And he and I both have a, a fondness for Lake St. Clair. We both have boats and we go out on the lake and um, he wanted to be baptized out in Lake St. Clair. So we took a boat ride a couple weeks ago. 
my wife uh, came with us and sang a song and did the videotaping. And I have that little video just to show you how you can take your next step to get closer to God.